Welcome to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics, the issues that matter to you. I'm Jeff Simmons. Thank you for making WBAI 99.5 FM a part of your day. Each week, we bring you conversations with the newsmakers and newsbreakers, and today we'll be doing just that. But first, let me introduce, drumroll please, the return of my stellar co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Thank you, Jeff. Really missed you. Really glad to be back here with you and with everybody here at WBAI. And I, of course, missed you as well. So much in the news. I feel like it is just nonstop. I have to also just throw one thing out there that shows how numb I, fe- I-, I felt recently when it comes to school shootings. Because when I heard the news, I'm like, again? And it's just, you know, it's just so disappointing that I had that reaction that many of us do that, you know, it's expected that it's just going to happen again. And it just, it's horrible when these things happen, Celeste. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And and I understand what you're saying because, you know, this has become a pattern, obviously, in American life, in American society. And I do a regular radio appearance in Australia on uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation Radio. And the situation in Australia, of course, is so different. It's not that they don't have crime, but the gun laws there are so very different and the attitude towards firearms so very different than what we have here in the United States. And they are just baffled when these stories come up in the news. And they just keep asking me over and over again, when are you guys going to figure it out? And I really have no answer for them, Jeff. And, and uh, it's just, I don't even know the answer. It's, and I'd love, you know, when we have our listener section at the very end of this show, if people want to weigh in on this, you know, what you think is even a solution. How do we resolve this? We'd love to hear you. That'll happen near the end of the show. Write down this number, but don't call in now. 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. The other thing that's on my mind, because I know we're going to get to our our first guest in a few moments. Um, I, I don't know if you had seen Celeste, but mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, you know, pounced on this story that Gothamist put out. I know it's been in other outlets as well about how few people turned out in the November election here in New York City in the general election, and it turned out. It was a smaller percentage than in any other mayoral election than in nearly seven decades, if you can believe that. Less than a quarter, 23% of eligible voters cast their ballots for mayor. Yeah, I think I can believe that, Jeff, actually. And, and it always it's sort of disappointing, and sometimes it's a little bit shocking, but less and less so. And I think that what we see in New York, of course, a lot of times is that these um, a lot of these big races do get uh, decided in the primary phase. And it seems to be that people feel like it's there's no point. And we have had these new experiences with uh, ranked choice voting and changes to our voting system. Obviously, the pandemic has had an effect on people. But as we sort of start getting back to normal, maybe not with the uh, Omicron uh, variant. But yeah, it, it really is a, a matter of concern, though, if people do not feel like it's worth participating in the political process. Where do we where does that leave us? I know. And you think about that we are now heading into this new season. I mean, it's it's been picking up as far as the governor's race. Several mm-hmm. folks have already declared. And one of those people who've declared uh, is Tish James, the sitting uh, New York State Attorney General, which means she's going to have to vacate her seat, Celeste. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the fact that uh, she's going to be doing that means that the field is going to be opening up pretty dramatically. Attorney General is a very, very important job. You know, some people compare it uh, versus, you know, if you want to look at it versus local district attorneys. Uh, there uh, there was a good piece in the city, uh, the online outlet of the city. We have lots of reporters from the city, uh, New York, uh, on this program. So you can check that out. But basically what the AG does is the AG is responsible for handling criminal appeals, influencing how a state approaches law enforcement, enforcing federal and state laws locally, and generally acting as a representative of the public interest, Jeff. 
And well, let's get then to our first guest today as we're talking about this topic, because she's seeking to become the state's next attorney general. I'm talking about Zephyr Teachout. She recently declared that she's in it to win it. She's a nationally recognized constitutional law expert, anti-corruption activist, and a leading voice against big corporate monopolies threatening democracy, equity, and human dignity. She grew up, just briefly, she grew up in a small rural community in Vermont, earned her BA from Yale in English, and graduated summa cum laude from Duke Law School, where she was also the editor-in-chief of the Law Review. She's a professor at Fordham Law School, has taught there since 2009, and you may know her name already. She's previously run for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2014 and for Congress uh, five years ago. With that, I'd love to welcome Zephyr Teachout to WBAI. Hi, it's really wonderful to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. I'm so stunned that we've never had you before. I'm very happy that you're with us today. I want to get to a point before you officially announced, you had told the New York Times that the AG's office is the best legal job in the country for people's lawyering. What does that mean to you and how has that changed over time? Well, you started to get at that in your introduction. It's a really powerful office and I think sometimes a misunderstood office. Because although it does have a criminal jurisdiction, the bulk of the work is actually civil. Um, and so the AG's office has extraordinary power to bring big, um, real impact litigation lawsuits on issues involving how workers are being treated, like big wage theft suits. What's happening um, in terms of kids getting poisoned and the, the lead poisoning uh, lawsuits. Um, uh, a whole array, uh, there's extraordinary tools, and in fact, new tools just this year to bring, um, to try to stop climate change and protect the environment um, with our new constitutional amendment in New York. Um, and there's this broad power to investigate and oversee corporate activity um, in New York as well, because of course, corporate law is state law, uh, which we, you may have known before, but when Tiff James dissolved the Trump Foundation, we all saw the way in which uh, the AG's office has this, not just authority, but responsibility to oversee the integrity of the corporations that exist within it. And then when it comes to, to criminal jurisdiction, you know, there's some areas that are, um, I, I think we, uh, more people do understand that the AG is um, by virtue of being distant from the local DAs and local police officers, um, has the authority and the responsibility to prosecute um, police misconduct uh, resulting in death. And I'm proud to uh, have the support when I launched of Keith Ellison, the AG of Minnesota, who was the prosecutor of uh, Derek Chauvin, George Floyd's murderer showing the incredible power and importance of having AGs who are willing to take on um, police violence. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's, uh, you know, when, when we uh, think about key legal jobs in the country, I would say you know, the AG's job is arguably the largest public interest law firm in the country, but it's, its job is just to serve the public, the people's lawyer. <laughs> I was wondering, first of all, thanks for coming here on the program. It's uh, great to hear your voice again. I think, I feel like I most recently saw you maybe, was it a couple of years ago, you were campaigning in lower Manhattan. I had a chance to speak to you then. Yes. Um, yes. It's great to talk to you again. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and I remember from uh, from when you ran for governor as well. Um, I want to stay on this for one minute, sort of a broader question. But since you touched on the issue of uh, police violence and policing, just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. But more broadly, what do you feel is the role of the attorney general there? Is is the attorney general uh, a public uh, public servant who can come out and talk about things like defunding the police or changing the structure of police departments, or is it more about enforcing laws that already exist? What is your philosophy on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 the key job of the AG is about uh, enforcement, the big civil lawsuits, but the AG also plays a significant public role. And um, as you may or may not know, I was a major supporter, advocate, and very happy to be supporting Alvin Bragg 
in his race for um, uh, Manhattan DA. He's coming in soon to be the new Manhattan DA. Um, and just somebody like Bragg and the other local DAs are the people on the front lines of of the uh, figuring out how to balance um, safety, justice, showing how they actually uh, are are not incompatible with each other, which was a major theme of his campaigns. And I, I deeply align with Bragg's philosophy. So there are occasional moments where it's important for the AG to speak up. And one of the things that you saw Tish James do is the AG is not a constant uh a constant political voice. It's largely an enforcement voice, but there are these occasional moments. And, and she was a, a key advocate, for instance, on expanding the power of the AG to prosecute police misconduct, which I think is really important. You know, a, a related area that you and I have talked about many times, by the way, speaking of the importance of having an AG who is coming from the outside and not connected to the, the power structures is the importance of um, policing and investigating public corruption. And we've just seen the importance of that this past year, where, uh, you know, having an AG be independent from the governor really mattered. I, we're not done with corruption in New York, however. And I have, for many years now, um, uh, been calling for and continue to call for uh, a broad-standing civil and criminal referral from the governor for... Uh, for the AG's office to investigate all public corruption and integrity. Because um, right now, you know, the AG has to request a referral for individual investigations. And and uh, when it comes to the significant stories of sexual harassment that we have seen in Albany um, or stories of corruption, there often isn't a place for people to go who want to complain. I think it's really important for people to understand that there is this separate source of power distant from the structures of Albany. And, you know, I wrote the book on corruption, so, you know, I'm not going to, to back off on those investigations. And just to stay on that for, for one more moment, you had a press conference recently, I think, uh, with a, a group of people who had survived sexual assault. And you talked about the quote unquote universal pattern of sweeping abuse under the rug. Just wondering, you know, talk a little bit more about what you would do. And by the way, is there also anything that you would have done differently or would like to have seen done differently in the investigation of former Governor Andrew Cuomo? Look, I, I think what we just saw with the released transcripts as well as the assembly report is uh, the evidence is really clear and it was really important. And, the you know, Tish James really did her job in a um, in unearthing um, in, and uh, conducting a very thorough investigation. And, and, and that was very much needed. At the press conference you're talking about, I was um, standing with some incredible advocates um, talking about the need to, for one, uh, pass a law to close a, a loophole in our current law that that effectively allows um, uh, staffers of politicians, um, of elected officers, to not be subject to general federal statutes. It's called the license to harass loophole. It's one example um, of the kind of laws that, you know, we should just, they should be no brainers um, and we should pass. And I gotta tell you, I mean, you've been following New York politics for a long time. I feel great about where we are in New York politics. We are in such a different moment. You know, not only do we have uh, a Democratic governor, Democratic Senate, which was such a struggle, um, and uh, a, a Democratic assembly. But there is a new spirit in New York politics, and it's a really exciting time to be really thinking about the possibilities of what what we can do in the state. You know, and what's so interesting, oh, and before I get to that, I do want to mention, you said you wrote the book on it. For our listeners, that book was called Corruption in America from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Definitely worth checking out. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and Celeste Katz-Marston talking with declared Attorney General candidate Zephyr Teachout. 
want to just get to voting rights protections because, you know, in recent days, we've seen the move by the New York City uh, Council uh, to uh, move towards non-citizen voting. There's been some pushback on that. Where do you stand on this? And what as attorney general can you do as far as voting rights protections? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I hope what happened this last month in New York was a real wake-up call to people. Um, uh, conservatives and Republicans, aided by uh, Ron Lauder, um, who's a, a billionaire who's increasingly been active in New York politics, spent millions of dollars to run ads to defeat basic voting reforms, same-day registration, no-excuse absentee voting. And uh, they did it. Um, I don't want to get too technical here, but basically they, they did it by using something called a housekeeping account. And these are these campaign finance entities that make it possible for parties to raise unlimited chunks of money. And they're not supposed to be used. Um, there's a whole area uh, of uh, law governing what they're not supposed to be used, but it, there actually isn't that much enforcement and I think it's critical for uh, all of us, but certainly uh, the, the AG, to be paying attention to these moments where there is a least reason, uh, reason enough for investigation into what looks like a campaign finance violation that then led to the destruction of key voting rights reforms. And, you know, voting is the bedrock. We see across the country these core attacks on um, on voting rights. And it's something I've cared about for a long time, spoken up about for a long time after the devastating um, case, Shelby County versus Holder. Um, I, it was the first time that I called for expanding the Supreme Court because we have a court that uh, did, uh, fails to recognize uh, the real threat to voting rights um, uh, and our racial, uh, our ongoing uh, racial discrimination and our racial um, uh, history. It's a really awful, awful case where Justice Roberts effectively invents a new doc, uh, constitutional law doctrine. I am not going to sleep on voting rights, at, not just nationally, but here in uh, New York. And I wanted to ask you in the little time that we have left, and we always wish we had more time because there's so many questions to ask you. But, uh, you know, we, you said that we, we are in a new era of New York politics. And I think that things certainly have changed from when you and I first met. This is going back some years now. Yes. But uh, where do you think we've made sort of the least progress? You, you know, if people want to get to know how you would change or, <laughs> or reform or revolutionize the office, what would be most different under uh, uh you know, teach out for AG? Well, I, I hear two questions there, and I want to answer them separately. Um, okay. Well, one, one is that I think it's really important to understand that the AG's office is incredibly flexible, and so it responds to the challenges of the moment, and that is as it should be. So the, the challenge, the fundamental assault of Donald Trump was a necessary um, frontline issue for the AG's office for the last several years, and that is as it should be. Um, uh, so what are the particular challenges of our moment? Well, one of the particular challenges is that we have the rising role of the quote-unquote gig economy, um, and you see rampant abuse in a business model that relies on underpaying workers and misclassifying workers. And uh, the AG's office has done a good job here. I just think there's a lot more that we need to do to get out in front of the wage theft and other form of worker abuse. Second, and I sort of suggested this at the outset, there are real new opportunities because of new laws. So one of the new laws is our, our new uh, constitutional provision, giving us a right to clean air and water. Another is that uh, new law... Um, uh, that allows us to hold gun manufacturers liable uh, for the harm that they cause. So this is a dynamic office, and it's important to understand it as a dynamic office. But to answer, in my one minute left probably, to answer your question about where is a state we have to really shift, 
we got to change the entire model of economic development. And I actually think this is something you and I have talked about for eight years now. Um, but we have an opportunity. We have had a crony capitalism model of economic development. Big donors get big bucks. And the result is projects like the Buffalo Billion, where there's a lot of money going out the door, public money, and relatively few, tiny number of jobs being created. And we need to really shift our thinking around economic development. And guess what? The AG plays a significant role there, too, investigating those contracts, making sure there isn't illegality and corruption. Um, and instead, that the people of New York get the public support that they deserve for thriving local economies. Zephyr Teacher, I wish we had, again, more time. And I know we're going to be talking a lot more about this race and about you and hopefully with you as the, uh, as the contest develops. But for now, where can people find out more about you and your work and your campaign? Go to Zephyr4AG.com and please join. This is a grassroots campaign. We'd love to have you. Zephyr Teachout, thank you so much for joining Jeff and me here on Driving Forces. Thank you so much. And I know we've got our other guests ready to come on. So uh, before we just get to him, I, I'd like to just uh, remind people that you have tuned into Driving Forces here on WBAI. And coming up in the next half hour, uh, after our next guest, we're going to be taking your calls. And that number to call at that time is 212-209-2877. Celeste and I would love to know what you want from an AG. What you think an attorney general, especially in New York State, should do. You can tell us how you feel the current AG has done right now. You could talk about any of the declared candidates because Zephyr Teachout is not the only declared candidate right now. And there are several who are also exploring runs right now. But, you know, we'll be able to invite others on the show in the future, too, and, and let you hear from them, too. And you can tell us what, you know, what you think about that. Right, Celeste? Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to this, actually. I always thought that uh, Attorney General was never got as much attention as governor, but has very, very longstanding impact on how we live, how we do business, how we interact with each other uh, in New York State. And so I think it is worth watching, not just because most people think AG stands for awaiting governor. Yeah, and uh, uh, what's so interesting, too, is I was there the night that Elliot Spitzer had uh, beat Dennis Vaco, <laughs> oh New York God. One had sent me to cover. I know to sent me to Spitzer's campaign because they're like well, he's not going to win. There's no way, and that, I think that yeah, decision, Elliot, who it, right, yeah, came down at like one in the morning. I think it was the one of the only people left there, other than of course the candidate. Uh, but uh, one other thing, did you know that New York has not elected a Republican? statewide since Governor George Pataki won a third term in 2002 and has not elected a Republican state attorney general since Dennis Vaca won in 1994, Celeste. That is a very interesting fact. I can't say it's completely shocking. New York typically is a pretty blue state, although when I first went to Albany back in, oh boy, when was it? Uh, 2001, 2002, when I was stationed there and then covered state politics for a long time. At that time, of course, uh, the uh, the governor was George Pataki and the state Senate was controlled by Republicans, by Joe Bruno, in fact, and uh, Shelley Silver was running the assembly. So now we are, I really got to get out of the way back machine here because I am very much dating myself, Jeff. <laughs> so who do we have up next, Celeste? Actually, we have a very interesting guest and somebody who's going to be talking about something that I think a lot of people who listen to Driving Force and who listen to BAI really care about. And of course, uh, after a guy drove his SUV through a holiday parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin last week, conservative activists were blaming the Milwaukee County District Attorney and other quote unquote reformist prosecutors for pledging to reduce incarceration, set lower bail. These kinds of debates have been taking place across the country during the pandemic, with courts trying to reduce jail crowding, trying to catch up on delayed trials. And so there's been a lot of backlash, but in this, at the same time, because there's been a nationwide increase in certain kinds of crime. And law enforcement, of course, you know, wants to point the finger at looser pretrial release conditions for incidents that involve people who were out on bail. Uh, and that includes uh, a series of shootings in New York. So uh, in January 2020, New York implemented uh, 
numerous landmark bail reforms, and that eliminated bail and pretrial detention in a lot of nearly all misdemeanor and nonviolent felony cases, but preserved bail for violent felonies, gun possession, sex crimes, murder, that sort of thing. Then in July, the state revised uh, these rules, making more cases eligible again for bail. So what we want to talk about right now with our next guest is, you know, what is the status of the debate over bail reform? What is uh, what is on the horizon? What can we expect from the next mayoral administration? Because we are looking at a, a change of power. So joining us now to discuss all of that and more is Michael Rempel. He is the director of jail reform at the Center for Court Innovation, where he oversees strategic planning and research related to reducing incarceration in New York City. Just quickly, he previously served for 16 years as the center's research director, conducting studies on a wide range of justice reform topics. Recently, he was principal investigator on a national study of prosecutor-led diversion programs and a multi-method study of what works in school safety. He also served as staff uh, to the Independent Commission on New York City Criminal Justice and Incarceration Reform. So, Michael Rempel, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Driving Forces here on WBAI. It's good to be here. So before we get started, maybe just give our listeners a little bit, uh, a little bit of a snapshot of what the Center for Court Innovation does. Yeah, so we are a nonprofit think tank, and we do, we do three things. We run programs in the New York City metropolitan area, and that's why it's two subcategories. We do crime prevention programs to try to prevent a case from happening, and then we run alternatives to incarceration. Second, we take the lessons from these and we bring it to jurisdictions nationally. And the third, and the third category is the one I'm in. We do research, and then we try to take research findings and make policy recommendations, whether it's about diversion nationally or reducing jail populations locally. So those are our three buckets. And Mike, welcome to the show. Your work specifically has been regarding jail reform with an aim towards reducing incarceration, as Celeste had noted. You had a really good report out this summer called Closing Rikers Island that laid out strategies to reduce the number of people in our jails. Can you talk a little about that report and its findings? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief for your listeners and give an overview. We did, we did this report with the Bitman Commission, and... Um, Maybe it would help to step back on, on why we did the report. We, we did it because the jail population in the city had been rising for, for over a year at the time we planned the project. It had reached a low not seen since the 1940s of uh, 3,800 people incarcerated at the end of April 2020. We hadn't seen that for, um, for over half a century. And, and then since then it went up, about 2,000 So we wanted to dive in and try to inform people that if you didn't want to reduce the population, how could you do it? And then we went through each stage of the case, pretrial, sentencing. Okay, now after sentencing, people might be released on parole, but they might be reincarcerated on a parole violation. So we went through each of these stages and just tried to outline strategies supported by data, supported by the experience of people we interviewed. To reduce the population, and we tried to be really somewhat conservative in what we developed. And by conservative, I I don't mean ideologically. I mean we tried not to overstate what could be achieved. And even with that mindset, we found that if we really did implement data-driven, reasonable strategies, we could get that population that had risen to about 5,800 people when we were doing the report per day down to 2,700 or fewer. So that was our goal, and that was, you know, that was where we landed without without getting into the details that people can read. And we are speaking to Michael Rempel from the Center for Court Innovation here on WBAI New York. And Mike, you know, uh, one of your findings, one of the things that you found and that you've talked about is that the use of bail overall went down in 2020. Uh, you know, some of the early impact from uh, January 1st until the uh, the shutdown and so on. But the, really, the, the real story behind the use of bail in 2020 is more complicated. Tell us a little bit about that. It did go down. So, um, so maybe stepping back and sort of understanding what New York's bail reform 
was. I like to think of it as having two basic types of provisions, what I'll call hard provisions and what I'll call soft provisions. So there were, there were two important hard provisions to understand what happened. The first is that use of bail got, got banned outright in the vast majority of misdemeanor and nonviolent felony cases. In other words, just non, nonviolent cases generally. So that's a hard provision. There would be no way around it anymore. And then there were a series of what we'll call soft provisions, like for the cases remaining eligible for bail, if judges set bail, they're supposed to take people's individual financial resources into account. And then even before setting bail, new standards were established for when that should be done. It had always been the case in New York that you could not set bail based on your perception of someone's future risk to public safety. You had to do it based on someone's likelihood of showing up to the court date. The whole idea would be you set it to incentivize someone's return to court so that you can dispose of the case. But the Overform established a new standard about risk of flight. You have to release people unless you have evidence they pose a risk of flight. So that's a sort of a, I'm going to call a soft standard because it doesn't identify specific cases you have to release without any conditions. When establishes a standard, ability to pay was another standard. So with that as set up, the, um, the hard, the hard aspects of the statute and bigger effects than the soft aspects of the statute. So outright banning bail and control detention for a large swath of cases in the rent reductions in their use. And, and the greatest, um, area for that was really not with misdemeanors because New York has long actually not set bail for misdemeanors. But, but with nonviolent felonies, and I'll, I'll just throw out one statistic to give your audience a, a sense of this. So nonviolent felony cases, these would be like drug possession, drug sales, grand larceny, various nonviolent property cases. The use of bail went from 37% to 15% from 2019 to 2020. So that's a huge difference. The soft provisions had, had real home mixed effects. We, we actually saw no change at all in people's actual ability to pay bail in the cases where it continued to be set. It stayed at about 15%. And actually, it went down from 17% to 15% right at arraignment. And then if you look at bail payment at any point in a case, it was just under um, a half mm -hmm. before and after the forms. So the new standards about ability to pay didn't seem to go into practice on the ground. And then just one more example. The other one I teed up, the risk of flight standard, which wasn't just about bail. It was about any conditions. You can't set any conditions at all unless there's a quote-unquote risk of flight, which many people thought might lead to more release without conditions. But instead, there was no change at all. Release without conditions for, for the most serious cases, for the violent felony cases, were 34% before and after the forms. But by the end of 2020, they were lower than that. Only 27% of people, when there was a violent mm -hmm. charge, got released without conditions. So, um, so that's sort of the story. It gives you a sense of, you know, when you have soft provisions or established standards, it's just difficult to produce, more difficult to produce change on the ground. And that's what we found. So, Mike, we've only got a few minutes left, and I just, you know, want to ask a question. I'm not sure where I had seen this recently because I read so many headlines every day. But there was a criticism saying the media is partially to blame for the backlash against bail reform. What do you think about that? Yeah, there are, there are articles written about the role of the media. And, you know, it's true, depending on what media you you will see genuine tragedies that are made into larger statements about bail reform or whether we should have bail reform. I think public officials whose comments are reported by the media need to take accountability for comments they make that are free of evidence. And we you know what those comments are. We have in New York police officials and others who have sought to tie the increased release that we have seen under the bail reforms to crime, but without really any evidence to support that. And in fact, even the New York Post, which you might 
Supreme Court have come out with this kind of story debunked New York's own police commissioner back in 2020 in, um, in, in showing that barely anyone who had been released under the reforms actually went out and, and reoffended. And then we look at research in other states that implemented bail reform earlier in New Jersey or, uh, or Illinois, and, 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 and so they've had time to actually do studies where they look at people released and they have a comparison group to people mm-hmm. who were detained pre-reform, and there's been, there's been no indication of increased recidivism. But so the answer to your question is, you know, we can talk about the role of the media, but public officials who drive those media stories, you know, should be accountable when they communicate information that's not based on evidence, or worse than that, as we saw in a Nassau County DA race, when they might seek a political advantage in, in making mistakes. And you raise... And you raise a good point there. So I know we had only limited time today, Mike. Before you go, please let our listeners know where they should go. If they want to read these reports we've been talking about, would love for them to know the website. Sure. So they can, they can read anything at our organization's website. It's courtinnovation.org. Mike Rempel, Director of Jail Reform at the Center for Court Innovation. Thank you for joining Celeste Katz-Marston and myself here on WBAI today. All right. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to open up the phone lines in just a few moments. The number for you to call is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. Let us know what you thought about what Mike Rempel said about bail reform or what Zephyr Teachout said about the Attorney General's office. We'd love to know. We're going to take a very short break now and then get to your call. So we'll leave you with... Uh, Celeste's favorite singer of all time, and mine as well, Barry Barry Manilow's Looks Like We Made It. Welcome back to WBAI's Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz Marston here with Jeff Simmons. That was Barry Manilow's Look Like It Looks Like We Made It. And Jeff, I think it looks like we made it through most of that song or part of that song. And we have made it to the most exciting part of this show, which is, of course, talking to you, our listeners. The number to call 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We have a bunch of people on hold. If you're trying to get through, keep calling. We're going to go to our first caller right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yes, greetings to the beloved community. This is my ad. I'm calling in the grotto this time. Hey, how's I things really in the grotto? I appreciate program today. 
Love Zephyr. What a what a great name. I'd like to hear someone who does those those name analyses. And also Michael, a lot of good information. I have a couple comments and a, a question or even an assignment for you, uh, Celeste. Okay. Um, uh, uh, the uh, King it, uh, morning program, I think it's, it's at 6 a.m., and um, we really appreciate Reggie because I cannot get through to that program with the regular, regular engineer. It seems that some email is required. It's not clear, but the airways for community radio must be open to all. But he had a very significant program regarding something that happened to Les at, uh, in Australia. And we heard from a Latoya rule and her about her brother, Wayne Taylor Morrison. And it seems that Australia has a way to um, kill black people, kill indigenous people by taking them into custody. Latoya's brother, Wayne, was an artist, a fisherman, a very, very um, a brilliant young man. And he got arrested on some trumped-up charges. We weren't even clear about that. And when he was about to be released, they hog-tied him, put him in a van with a hood, a spit hood, so-called spit hood. And when he was taken out of the van, he was brain dead. And they had something in Australia, and this I, I wasn't familiar with, uh, where a right to remain silent against incrimination. So all of these 400-plus people who have been killed, indigenous black people of color who have been killed in custody. So the question and concern is, is you've tapped some sources in Australia regarding their shock and, and around uh, the hate that's in the land. If you didn't expect this from coming from DTs, as Vincent uh, Vincente Fox, former Mexican president, said, his asshole mouth, that the hate and violence wouldn't be royal in the land, as fascism is being put in place. So if you get my question, Celeste, follow up on how 400 and some plus people, I forget the exact period, but apparently there's a genocide. And we have some equivalent in terms of upstate people being thrown downstairs and all kinds of craziness. And I'll listen over the air, and hopefully you will bring us a report and some account from Australia about what they're doing this in terms of all the um, the murders that they can get away with, with. We have the right to remain silent against incrimination. And thank you so much for this program. Thank you, and thank you for listening, and thank you for your call. I have to say that I was not uh, as familiar with that situation uh, as as you seem to be, but I think that's something that uh, certainly we have talked about, uh, police violence, police-related brutality here on the program, and we'll be talking more about law enforcement in the future. But, Jeff, yeah, I think, you know, moving on to our next caller, but uh, very interesting comments there, certainly. I agree. So let's get to that next call because we want to squeeze them in because we've only got 10 minutes left. Let's put on the next call. Welcome to WBAI. You were on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Daryl McPherson calling from Bronx, New York. Um, Welcome. Thank you, uh, Jeff, and thank you, Miss (laughs) Mark. Celeste. Celeste, Celeste. Just think of celestial seasons. There's, no, no worries. There's a, there's, a, there's a Zoom call today around the New York Health Act, and would you all consider doing more programming? Because um, if I get one more call asking me to join what Ralph Nader calls the um, the misadvantaged plans, I think I'll just leap. Um, and if you if if you would also consider doing a program on those. Uh, Medicare Part C. Uh, I think that it would help a great number of people because um, this thing is really confusing, and people people are getting taken to the well, whatever. And, so, and you're raising a good point. You know what? We I, I agree. We haven't done a healthcare episode. Actually, Celeste had sent me something about a healthcare issue. 
Uh, we already had today's show booked, so we'll come back and do a healthcare uh, show in the next uh, few weeks. You know, getting near the end of the year, so it might be early 2022. But it is worth revisiting. Uh, you know, we try to focus on issues such as climate change. We do a lot of politics. We know that, but you're right. Healthcare is an issue that's important, not just to our listeners, but to well to everyone. Uh, so it is something we should revisit. So thank you so much for calling us today. Uh, we've got. I think we've. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, so certainly. Sir, no, I think, and that that is a uh, that is a good point. We do want to hear from you. What kinds of things you want to hear us talk about and talk to you about on this program? Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven is the number to call. Let us know what do you want to hear about on Driving Forces. What kind of guests do you want taking up what kinds of topics? Two one two. Two oh nine two eight seven seven. I think we have somebody else on hold. If so, welcome to WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello. My name is Dorothy Manso, and I'm calling from Little Neck, New York. Welcome. Hi. Uh, I have two questions, one directed to Jeff. But the first one is, are there other candidates running for attorney general besides Peter? Yes. In fact, let me just scroll in my notes right here. The other declared candidates for attorney general right now. Here are a few Democrats. State Senator Shelley Meyer. Uh, Democrat Daniel Goldman. He was the lead prosecutor in Donald Trump's 2019 impeachment. Uh, Mark Vulos, former superintendent of the state's Department of Financial Services. Uh, there's a Republican, Michael Henry, a commercial litigation attorney, and another attorney from White Plains, John Sarcone. But there's also uh, uh, there's also a few exploring, like Eric Gonzalez, who, if you don't know, is the Brooklyn District Attorney, uh-huh. uh, Senator Michael Gianaris, uh, who earlier this week was uh, in one of his criticisms blaming prosecutors and judges for mishandling information uh, when it came to uh, uh, mishandling uh, bail, rather. Uh, Queens DA Melinda Katz as well, also possibly exploring, oh, yeah. and Assemblyman Clyde Vanell of Queens. Oh wow! You said you had another part you wanted to ask about. Yes, this is directed to you. Two weeks ago, you had Tova Felcher on from the Museum of, and and you offered a book, and I ordered it, and I it's been two, over two weeks, and I still haven't gotten it. Will I get it? <laughs> Yeah, actually, yes, you will. I'm going to make sure that's taken care of. And Reggie, I don't know if you're able to, when uh, this call ends, if you're able to get her information and get it to me and I'll verify all this. I've got them right behind me in this room. I'll autograph for you. So I will take care of that. And I will personally make sure I get that in the mail to you. Oh, okay. Uh, so great, because it's a birthday present and it I'm going to be 91 in December 12. Wow. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Anyway, and thank you guys. It was a great, you're always have a great program. And Celeste and Jeff, I've been listening to you since you've come on VAI. I'm, 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 I've been listening to the station forever. And, uh, I think that you're doing a great job, and uh, thank you again. And, thank you so and, and Jeff, much. what do I have to do to make certain I'm going to get the book? Okay. Um, well, actually, I'm going to give you my email address. Everyone else can have this as well. It's okay. Um, but Reggie, also, if you're able to even keep her on the line, unless if that doesn't work with our technology. But if you don't, if that doesn't work, just email me, and I'll take care of it. It's Jeff. That's easy. Jeff at WBAI. I want to make sure it's dot com. Is it? Dot is org. our email address dot org? Jeff at wbai dot org. I've got way too many email oh, okay. addresses. I'm I'm real lousy on the computer, but I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, well, Reggie, if you can if you can help out, that would be uh, that would be great. But if not, then um, we will find a way. Well, if we have if I we have your order through the time. website, we will make sure to get that book to you. And we appreciate your support so much thank you so much both of you okay take care thanks a lot i think we have a few more people in a few more minutes and we'll try to make all those things fit together but we're going to go to our next caller right now and that was a very touching call thank you so much uh jeff and i have been on the air together on this program since 20 
2018. So yeah, that's what, three. So uh, nice to hear that people are actually out there listening. We're going to go to our next call. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, greetings, uh, Earthlings. Uh, you call me a stranger in a strange land. Uh, you mentioned health care. Uh, we seem to have a government that does not really care about our health. As a matter of fact, if they cared so much about our vaccinations, which is, again, controversial, they'd be giving us healthy food. Why are people bankrupted because they have cancer? Does that sound like a moral and just society that we have? Why is cancer? Why can people become bankrupt if they have cancer that they're dealing with? Yeah, that's yeah, a, that, that's a, an, an excellent question. And certainly nobody wants to be uh, bankrupted or see anybody else bankrupted by cancer. And thank you for your call. I think this is something that everybody has seen. Uh, cancer is something that has touched everybody's family. And unfortunately, and I, I wish I had a, a I wish I had a real answer to that question, but I think that we're going to have to move on to our next caller, except to, to I, I think, Jeff, can I speak for you in, take, in saying that we should take a stand on this program that nobody should be bankrupted by cancer? Uh, gonna, is that, Jeff, are you cool with that? I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Okay, perfect. Well, I think we just have a couple more minutes. I know you have a big programs coming up, right? Um, City Watch coming up? Yep, we have City Watch coming up this Sunday. And in fact, you know, it's interesting. I was with a few elected officials earlier today. Uh, we have uh, Gail Brewer. Uh, and by the way, that's City Watch at 10 a.m. this coming Sunday. Uh, I've got Gail Brewer. She's the Manhattan Borough President. She has just won a term to take on her old New York City Council seat, and she's running for New York City Council Speaker. She wants to be the one that the 51 members uh, you know, vote as into uh, office as speaker. Uh, and I also then have Vanessa Gibson, uh, New York City Council member, who will now become the first woman uh, borough president of the Bronx. Uh, very important, very good show. And I've uh, also got a new group called New York. I want to get it right. I always mess this up. Uh, new York City Speaks. Uh, where you, as our listeners, as New Yorkers, you will be able to, over the next six, seven months, weigh in on what you think the new city administration should do as far as policy. It's really important stuff. And then next week, Celeste, who I don't even know if I told you, but I think I did. Who do we have on our show next week, which I think everyone's going to want to tune in? Did you tell me? Was it a surprise? <laughs> are, you, are you breaking news on air in the final moments of this program, Jeff? New York City controller Scott Stringer as he prepares um, to end his time in government. That's going to be a good program. Scott Stringer, somebody that we've all been talking to for a while. He has seen it all. And I think that's going to be a, a great conversation. So I'm going to look forward to that. And I just want to take one second, Jeff, before you uh, roll us out of here that we want to thank our amazing engineer, Reggie. Uh, of course, our guests, New York State Attorney General candidate Zephyr Teachout and Mike Rempel, Director of Jail Reform at the Center for Court Innovation. And again, I'm so happy that you're back, Celeste. Don't ever leave me again. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, thanks again, Reggie, for a wonderful show. And to our callers, thank you so much. I will make sure right after this I send that email out to try to get your details uh, so I can get you the book to our caller. Anyway, we upload every edition of our program to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. You can subscribe and never miss a show. On behalf of Celeste and everyone who is part of WBAI, I thank you for making WBAI a part of your day. And as Celeste loves to say, I'll see you on the radio next week.